this week's message is called, uh, Where is God? So that's our question for the week. Where is God? Okay. And for most of human history, most societies have come to the same conclusion, that God, whatever that meant to that society, um, dwells in temples. God's present in a temple. And if you wanted to go be near God, you wanted to go visit God, talk to God, get something from God, be in the right relationship with God, you had to go to that temple and do something. And like I said, many cultures have uh, come to the same conclusion. So do we have the the slides of the different temples? So I'm going to butcher the names of some of these things. Just stick with me. This is the Temple of Heaven in Beijing. So I hope you're able to, to see that. I love the fact that we've got these newer, you know, new TVs in here, and uh, we're going to make use of the high-def um, big screens. But this is the temple um, in Beijing. The next one is the Golden Temple in India. And I was blown away to find out that this temple has over 100,000 people that go through here a day to worship. Mind blown that 100,000 people a day go and worship. I mean, it's, it's obviously bigger than just that gold thing. Like, it, it spans out. It's a massive structure. But 100,000 people a day go and worship in this golden temple in India. Uh, the next one, uh, Mahabodhi Temple. This is also, uh, maybe I missed it. So that one is the Temple of Hephaestus. That's a Greek temple, obviously, from years and years and years before, even before Jesus. So ancient, ancient Greece, right? Um, it's one of the few that's still standing. Um, obviously, you, can't, you don't see the ornate or the fancy stuff there, but you can just imagine what this would have been looking like in its heyday. Um, and the next one, this is Herod's temple, or what we know as the second temple. Um, this is in Jerusalem. Right? And this is, this is a model, this is actually like a scale model um, that they built. It's, um, the buildings behind it are also like scale models. You can go in Israel to this place and walk around the whole ancient Jerusalem. Um, and anything that's like the red roof off to the side, anything that's red is just like architect's imagination, like they're filling in spots. So if it's red, it's artist rendering. Um, they're make, basically making their best guess at that point. Um, but you can see the structure of this, this temple, right? There's the, the massive walls, and then in the center is the inner courts, right? So, yeah, so, um, can, we, can we go back to the last one for a second? This is the view from the east, right? So, we're, we're the sun looking at this, and you can see those two pillars maybe in the middle of the wall there. Between there is the eastern gate, um, or a gate called Beautiful, I think, is what the Bible tells us at one point. But th- this is um, a, the, the eastern wall. So on the back side of that, behind everything else, where you start to see the houses and the other buildings, that would be the western wall, um, which still, parts of that still stand today, and we'll get to that in just a second. But now we can go to the next one. So this is what's called the inner courts. So when you're reading your Bible and you hear things, them talking about the courts, going into the courts and out of the courts, sometimes that's referring to, um, like, kingdom imagery, like the king's courts would be, you know, on a palace somewhere. But when he's talking about courts of worship, courts of praise, or the temple courts, this is what they're talking about. And so if you remember just a moment ago, the, the big picture and that area where you could go into that big flat spot, that was anybody was allowed to go in there. Anybody could go in through those, those gates and be in, that, um, in that, that outer courts area. There was no qualifications, no guidelines, nobody checking 
your, your credentials to get in there. Um, women, foreigners, sinners could go there, whatever. Like they weren't too cautious about who got into those outer courts. But here, this is where things get serious. And the image we have here is the inner courts. And you can see the golden door at the front, kind of towards the bottom there. And if you're going to get through there, you're going to have to be uh, a Jewish male in good standing to get to that point. Like this is where, where important teachings happen. This is where holy people, righteous people can go. And then you can go see doors beyond that and get into the, the inner inner courts and you get to the, where the Holy of Holies is and that tall pillar, like the presence of God, that's where God was. <laughs> right? So you can see this whole proximity thing. And this is, you can see the gold. And this was just, they talk about in various places in the Bible, the wealth of the temple. And all the resources of the nation went into building this ornate temple because this, is, this represents our God. This is where God lives. You can go to the next one. Um, and this is the western wall. So if you're standing where those houses were on the first slide and looking, and those things there are people. That's how massive this structure was. I mean, it was huge. Think of the resources and the time that a nation would put into constructing this temple. And then think it was on top of the highest mountain in the area, on top of Jerusalem. So in the Bible, they talk about going up to Jerusalem, you're literally going up a mountain, and then the temple sits on top of that mountain. It was an imposing structure, right? This, this declared, if you're on the roads walking towards Jerusalem, from far off you could see this temple. And you could tell it meant business. This was serious. So what happens today, this western wall is pretty much all that remains of the second temple, Herod's temple, from Jesus' day. And people go and they go and pray, and they write prayers on pieces of paper, and they stick them in the cracks, between, uh, between the stones, because this is, if you remember that first slide, on the other side of this wall was where the Holy of Holies was. And so people still go there, the Jewish people specifically go, because that's, they can still be close to where God was. The presence of God was just on the other side of this wall. Um, and so it's a significant uh, place in, in, in their religious practices and their faith. So this temple was the, the center where all authorized religious activities happened. And these religious activities happened in the temple, performed by, organized by, overseen by uh, people that had the authority to do them. I mean, this was a pretty imposing thing. God was present there. We had this massive, ornate facility. And people that were really holy and really smart and, and powerful and, and had the status governed this temple. Um, the people that ran this temple at the time where it was operational in the time of Jesus, they were in relationship with King Herod. That's why it's called Herod's Temple. So the king actually had this temple built to establish some goodwill with the religious communities of, of Israel. But Herod and the Roman leaders were in relationship with the people that ran this temple. The temple was the place to worship God. It was the place to worship God. This is where you went. You know, in our day and age, you, you probably drove past 15 churches on the way to church this morning. Um, you could pick any one of them. Like, this is where you went to worship God. This is the place you went to go to hear what God had to say to you. Right? And so this is the backdrop for part of our story today. Um, we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, and as we read this together, you'll immediately realize that this has absolutely nothing to do with the temple. I just spent five minutes explaining temple stuff, and you'll be like, this has nothing to do with the temple. Um, 
but I'll get back to that in just a second. But join me with Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. It says, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, uh, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we are grateful for your word today. Um, We are gathered together to hear what you might have to say to us. So that we may be people who are not only informed by that word, but people who are shaped by that word. May your spirit uh, bring to life in us the fruits that it is destined to produce. May we uh, gather together and grow as individuals, but also as a community that looks like Jesus. Help us to see and to hear today. We thank you and we love you. Amen. So this scripture of Jesus being baptized by John is often referred to as the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Like, if you go back much further before this, you don't have Jesus doing a whole lot of ministry stuff. He might be learning, he might be at the synagogue, he might be teaching, he might be a baby, right? Like, but this is like the starting line in the scriptures, in the gospel story. Um, this is the beginning. But before we, we kind of jump into this and try and understand what's happening here, I want us to actually... Fast forward to a a story that is closer to the end of Jesus' ministry. Um, So I know we just talked about temples, and then we read a scripture that had nothing to do with temples, and then we just read this, like I said, we read the scripture from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and now we're going to talk about the end of ministry. Um, And if things come together today, it'll all make sense. If not, we'll be all over the Gospels. But um, I think this will all make sense by the time we're done. So Matthew chapter 21. In this story, Jesus was near the temple. He was in Jerusalem. Like I said, it was towards the end of his, his life. Um, he'd been healing people. He'd been forgiving sins. He'd been casting out demons. And now he was near the temple or in the temple preaching and teaching, right? So he's inside that temple. You picture the, the, the slide, right, the gates. He was inside the temple, probably inside the, the second set, like in the important section, not just where the crowds hang out, but like actually in the teaching portion. Um, because it says the chief priests could hear, and the chief priests aren't going to be hanging out with the common folk. Um, so Jesus is inside some of the inner courts, and he's teaching people about God or the kingdom of God, and the chief priests could hear. And they've heard of his miracles, and now they're hearing Jesus teach about the coming kingdom of heaven and what it's like. And so, uh, 
you would think that religious people, people that had dedicated their whole life, had, had, had given their whole life to working in the temple and teaching people about God and, 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 and knows the scriptures inside out, you think they'd be excited to hear this revelation that Jesus is bringing. When he says God's kingdom is at hand, and when you see God forgiving sins and healing people that are sick, you'd think that religious folks would be excited that God is doing stuff, especially after uh, a 400-year period where God in their culture didn't speak. There's a 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament where they don't think God said anything to them. God was just silent. There was no new word from God. And so Jesus shows up, and here he is proclaiming a new word from God, and you would think these religious people would be excited to have a new word from God. I mean, it's been a prophetic hope of generations, and it's being fulfilled right there next to them. Do they humbly embrace the call to become disciples of this new teacher? Do they listen to the words of Jesus and say, that's the guy we want to follow? Thank God that he is here finally. No, they, they certainly don't. <laughs> when they hear Jesus' teaching and, and knowing of his miracles, they question who Jesus was. They question who told Jesus he could be teaching there and doing the things that he was doing. So if, I think I made a slide for this. In Matthew chapter 21, the chief priests say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? The people in charge of the temple were concerned about authority when Jesus showed up because the temple was this holy place where God's presence dwelled. This is the dwelling place of God. This is the location of God's presence. And those who controlled the temple, those who were in charge, those who had the authority of the temple, wielded a tremendous amount of power and influence and authority because they controlled the place that God dwelled you see what's happening here? So the temple was, was <clears throat> this holy place. And then there was these peripheral things. So there were things that were attached to the temple. So the main elements of worship. But then as you moved out, there were still ripple effects of the temple into the community. Out. And the farther you got away from the temple, kind of the farther away you got from God. And that will come into actually next week's sermon. Um, but, but just keep that in mind that... that this main structure, this temple, is where the authority uh, of, of these chief priests came from because that's where God was present. The temple was more than just a location. It was a clearly defined hierarchy of power and authority. In businesses today, we have org charts, right? <laughs> the chief priests were at the top of this org chart of religious organization. They were the CEOs. They were at the top. Their authority came from their position in relationship to the temple, right? They were the ones that controlled the temple. They were the ones that could get closest to where God was, but not only get closest to it, but they could control who got where and what they did when they got there. And so the temple and the chief priests had power because it was where God was present. And so when the chief priests asked Jesus that question of, who told you you could be doing this? Under what authority are you saying these things? It wasn't some hypothetical question. They were wanting to know, like, who gave you permission to teach these things here? Let me see your, your license to drive religious, right? Like, let me see your ordination papers. Let me see your credentials. 
They were pointing to their own authority because they knew Jesus didn't have those things. So they were appealing to their own positions. Jesus wasn't Jesus was teaching something they didn't authorize, and Jesus was doing things like healing sick people and like forgiving sins that they thought required the authorization to do as part of the temple system. So you can't be forgiven. There's no forgiveness of sins outside of the temple worship practices, is there? Jesus was not authorized user of temple authority. He was not a chief priest. In fact, Jesus held no official role in the temple. So you have this giant institution of religious authority and power. I mean, imagine being a, a, a regular, regular Joe or Jane walking through the, the streets of Jerusalem and seeing this temple towering over you, knowing that, that those there had divine authority and power over you. Like, this is an intimidating, powerful organizational structure and Jesus had nothing to do with it he wasn't tied into it at all I mean how would how would we respond today if when uh, Paul stepped down from reading the scripture and the catchy little bumper music kick on I really like that that music um, that's why I let it go so long um, instead of me getting up here a stranger just walked in the back door and came up here and started preaching like, who are you to be preaching us? You're like, you're not the pastor. You don't have permission to be here and to be saying and doing these things. I have a funny story from my personal experience at a previous church that you should ask me about sometime. We won't get into it here, but um, where somebody just showed up and like, hey, I'm going to preach today. Um, but better yet, imagine a random Joe, an unidentified stranger, just a regular blue-collar guy showing up in Vatican City where the Roman Catholic Church is headquartered. And showing up and just starting doing Pope-type things, driving around in the Pope-mobile and wearing big Pope hats and stuff and whatever, the, whatever else the Pope does, blessing people and stuff. Imagine if some, somebody that wasn't the Pope sh- showed up and started doing Pope things. What do you think the Vatican's response would be? What do you think Catholic response would be? Right? There's a structure, there's a system, there's power, there's authority, there's, there's a, a process, there's a procedure. And if you don't follow it, it's not going to work. Well, Jesus was outside of all of that just showed up and started teaching. And so their question, whose authority and who told you you could be doing these things, is a real question. I mean, they were trying to put Jesus in his place. Like, let's shut this down, get you out of here, like you're not speaking on our behalf. Jesus was healing and forgiving and teaching without the proper credentials. There was this clearly defined structure of power and authority, and Jesus wasn't a part of it at all. He wasn't even like a part-time priest, right? Like he wasn't bivocational. Like he, just, he, he was not authorized to be doing what he was doing according to the temple system. So when they asked him that question, rather than respond with a direct response, Jesus does this oh so well and so many times, rather than respond to a direct question with a direct answer, he responds with a question of his own. And it challenges their authority at the source. So Jesus replied, Again, still in Matthew chapter 21. I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, then I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. This is where we get circled back to the scripture from earlier. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven? Meaning, was it from God? Was it from God's authority? So heaven is God's like throne room. That's God's control room. That's the operation central for God's activities, right? So was it from heaven? Or of human origin, right? 
Now, that might seem like a simple question to us, because partly because we, we know the answer. Um, but if your position of power and authority, if your job uh, depended upon you having a monopoly on the presence of God and all acts of worship, it complicates things a little bit, doesn't it? Right? Because the rulers of the temple had tremendous amounts of power and control precisely because they controlled access to the presence of God. Or so they thought. But Jesus was just out there giving blessings and forgiveness away to anyone, to everyone. (laughs) He's radical. He's just out there forgiving and blessing anybody. So this wasn't just a theological question. It was a question of power and control, a question of status, a question of, of wealth. It was a question of a sense of security while living in Israel that was occupied by the Romans. So why a question of John's baptism in which Jesus himself participated, the scripture we read this morning, that, that Jesus himself submitted to a baptism by John. Well, there were many mikvah baths on the Temple Mount. Now, a mikvah bath is a specific ceremonial bath um, or pool that was set up for religious practices, for ritual cleansing or for baptisms, right? So in, in the Jewish world, um, to be baptized or to participate in a ritual cleansing, water had to be moving. It had to be flowing. So when you see things called living water, that was actually their, tec- their technical term for it. Living water was moving water. And so this was a requirement. You couldn't be ritually cleaned in dead water. That's why pouring comes in, like that water's moving. But they created these special baths around the temple that created a flow. So like water would go from one place and it would flow through this pool and out into the other pool, other pool, right? It would, so it was moving water that would wash away your sins. It would ritually cleanse you for entrance into the temple or preparation for worship or sacrifice or whatever. Um, and they had many of these. Like if you're an archaeologist, you can go find the remains of some of these mikvah baths still around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. And because these mikvah baths were a part of the temple, they were a part of the temple system. Right? This is where you would go to get ritually clean. Like if you were going to come to the temple to worship, this is where you would go to prepare for entrance into those inner courts. And those mikvah baths were under the authority of the chief priests. So John wasn't baptizing on the Temple Mount. He wasn't baptizing people in the official mikvahs. He didn't have the proper credentials either. In fact, he was baptizing in the Jordan River in the middle of the wilderness. So Jesus' question about the authority under which John baptized drives a fine point on this discussion that they were having. If John's authority came from God, it's because God himself was operating where? (laughs) In the wilderness, outside of the temple. Wait, religious activities can actually happen outside of the temple? And if God was operating outside of the temple system, if people could access God without submitting to the temple requirements, if people could have access to forgiveness without submitting to the authority and power of the temple priests, if God could have ac- or people could have access to God outside of the temple without sacrificing animals and giving to the, the offering of the temple, you see where I'm going? 
Their power, the chief priest's power and authority, their monopoly over access to God is, is all but gone instantly if John's baptism is actually God-ordained. If God was there, the whole temple doesn't make sense anymore. The people had experienced God's presence in the baptism of John and considered John a prophet. So the, the population knew that God was doing something in John's baptism. The scriptures tell us that Judea and all of Jerusalem had come out to John's baptism. A lot of people weren't going to the temple to worship. They weren't going to the temple to be baptized. They were going into the wilderness to John. And so these chief priests, when confronted with Jesus' question about what authority was John doing what he was doing, well, he wasn't operating under the authority of the temple, so they said the only thing they could say, we don't know. <laughs> they didn't want to say, well, God's not in that. God wasn't out there. All these thousands of people that went out there and experienced something with God, the chief priest didn't want to come against that. But they didn't want to invalidate their own authority. And so they said, we don't know. We, Jesus really pinned them into a corner here. I, I love Jesus. He's way more, he's way more radical, way more challenging than we ever anticipated him being. So what does it mean that Jesus participated in John's baptism and not one on the Temple Mount? What does it mean that, that Jesus, when ha given the choice of, of being ritually cleaned, chose John's baptism in the wilderness? Now, this was always a strange thing to me, and maybe it's caused some confusion to you as well, the question of why did Jesus need to be baptized? Right? If it was for repentance of sins, and Jesus didn't have sin, like, what's going on here, right? This was always a question for me, and I've talked to a lot of people, and we try to come up with good answers. So, um, why was Jesus baptized? I've, I've heard several explanations. Um, one is that he, he did it to identify with us because he came to save us, so he wanted us to know that he was one of us to emphasize his humanity um, and identity with us. Um, like I said a few moments ago, it signifies the start of his ministry. So, it's, it's a moment that says, you know, here we go. Um, it was a ceremonial cleansing before the Holy Spirit came down. So, you know, we have that moment with the Spirit coming down like a dove. And so this was ceremonial. It was uh, educational. It was informative. It showed what God could do or what God was up to. Um, or maybe it was instructional. Maybe this was Jesus just setting the example for us. He's our teacher, so we should do what he does. Um, there's even some explanations that talk about how it was a glimpse of what is to come, foreshadowing his death going under and resurrection coming up, right? But knowing that Jesus sees John's baptism, at least in part, in the context of, of temple authority, um, as he brought up here in Matthew 21, how does that help us answer the question, where is God? Jesus himself submitted, participated in a baptism that was outside of the temple system, outside of temple authority. He was joining others who were being baptized outside and a part of the temple system and the temple authority. In another story from the life of Jesus, Jesus shows up at the temple and disrupts the operation of that temple, right? We call it lots of things, the cleansing of the temple, where he chases out the money changers, right? familiar with the story. He shows up, he's mad because of what's going on in the temple. 
You can see Jesus really didn't, wasn't a huge fan of the temple stuff at this point. Um, but in that, when he tips over the tables and disrupts the entire operation of, of worship and sacrifice and all of that, he says these words, My house was to be a house of prayer, but you made it a home for robbers. When he says those words, he is quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56. And I want to read just a little bit from that uh, chapter to give you some context, because people that would have heard Jesus say those words would have known Isaiah. And they would have said, oh, there's context to this. Um, They would have heard what Isaiah was saying as well. And so let me just read a, a, a little bit from Isaiah 56. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord and to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. I know there's a lot there, and I'm going to give a little bit of context, but Isaiah had some things to say about the the temple as well. The temple was supposed to be a place where, as Isaiah said, all nations, which means all people, could gather with God. And that's what he's saying, don't let foreigners be excluded. Foreigners who love God, who know God, they don't exclude them just because they're foreigners. And eunuchs, who don't who are marginalized, and I'm not going to go into definitions about eunuchs at at this time, but these were outsiders that were excluded from society in Jesus' day and other times as well, but don't let them be excluded. Like The house of God, the place where God dwells, is supposed to be a place where all people who know God can come and worship and gather together. The temple was meant to be a highway for everyone to encounter the holy God. And yet in Jesus' day, the chief priests, the rulers of the temple, put up gates and toll booths. Right? Isaiah says that God says that all people can come and encounter and meet with God in the temple. This will be my holy place where the world will be blessed because they're able to come and engage God. But in Jesus' day, the chief priests had made barriers They denied access to many people, and they charged others for their access. The temple and its rulers grew wealthy and powerful by controlling access to God. I mean, how were the sick, the poor, and the sinners going to experience God's redemption and salvation if the sick, the poor, and the sinners were denied access to God? 
This is why Jesus got angry. The very people who needed God the most weren't qualified to get near God. The system works great for those in control of the system, but it also makes sure that nothing changes and nobody gets out of place. And then we have the story from Mark. John and Jesus and a growing crowd were out in the wilderness performing religious acts of forgiveness and cleansing, far removed from the temple and its authority. So I'm sure the crowds of people were grateful for John's ministry. There's people that were receiving forgiveness, and it didn't cost them anything. They were receiving forgiveness, and there was no gates to go through, no gatekeepers to convince that they were worthy enough to proceed. There's no tolls, no taxes, nobody checking to see if you were good enough to be there. <laughs> see how radical of an alternative John's baptism was. I mean, John's appearance itself was rugged and rough, right? The scriptures tell us about, you know, burlap cloths and eating locusts, right? Like, it's not just to tell us that he's weird or he's crazy. It's to paint a contrast to the people that controlled the baptisms on the temple, the chief priests. John wasn't getting rich through his ministry. Forgiveness of sins was his only agenda. He wasn't creating barriers that people had to jump through to his satisfaction in order to come. He wasn't getting more powerful or wealthy or building his own empire by controlling access to God. But if you're in this crowd that's grateful for, for being baptized, you might still be wondering if John's baptism was actually good. <laughs> was it authentic? Did it work? He said, my sins are forgiven. Are they actually? Because remember, the temple is kind of impressive. I mean, if there was going to be a place that looked like God dwelled, like that would be the place. And there's all these holy people with their fancy clothing and their important titles and, and people that follow them around and do what they say. That temple cast a long shadow into Israel and its people. And so if you were getting baptized by John, you might be wondering, like, is this really a, does this count? Was, is God really forgiving my sins? Because God's in the other place, right? Like, God's not out here. God's in the temple. A baptism that God isn't involved in is nothing more than a weird bath, right? Like, does forgiveness actually happen? It's just a weird bath. So when Jesus is baptized and he comes up from the water and the Holy Spirit descends upon him and God speaks, the voice from heaven is heard saying, this is my son, now, wait a minute. God is out here in the wilderness with us poor sinners? God speaks out here in the wilderness to us poor sinners? There's no priest. There's nobody moderating. He just started talking. God isn't bottled up inside the temple where one of the most holy, where only the most holy and powerful people can access God. John was not out in the wilderness because he was crazy or weird. John's baptism in the Jordan was a direct challenge to the temple's claim on being the exclusive presence of God. When Jesus was baptized by John and the voice of God is heard and the Spirit descends, it confirms that God is in fact in the wilderness. 
But God being present in the wilderness shouldn't be that surprising for people that knew their Old Testament scriptures. It shouldn't have been shocking that God was out in the wilderness saying and doing things because that's where they find God throughout the history of Israel. Moses engages God in the wilderness through a burning bush on the top of a mountain. The Ten Commandments are given in the wilderness. Miracles are performed where God provides food and water for his people as they wander in the wilderness. The tabernacle was a portable house for God that God could dwell in as they wandered in the wilderness. A God that is in the wilderness with his people is a different kind of God. And I've got this, this phrase, that one thing I want you to know today, so we're going to put it on, on the screen, because this is, if you, I know I've kind of been all over the page, but if you remember one thing, this is what I want you to know. A God that comes to where you are is a God that can save you. Right? Because I asked the question a few minutes ago, is how are sinners and sick and poor people going to experience the salvation and redemption and healing of God if they are not allowed to be where God is? And the scriptures tell us over and over and over again that where God is, there is life. Where God is, there is healing. Where God is, there is redemption. And the chief priests believed that, and they said, yeah, we know where God is, and we built walls around it. <laughs> but a God that comes to where you are is a God that can save you. The title of today's sermon is, Where is God? How do you answer that question? We've been largely taught to think of God as being far away in the heavens, like far off, somewhere abstract in the heavens, some other place. Sometimes God maybe gets bored and he looks over the clouds down at us and peeks in to see how we're doing or what we're up to. But God is mostly absent. He's there. Maybe he knows what's going on here, but God's far away someplace else. The chief priests, on the other hand, would say that God was, was present in the Holy of Holies. He dwelled there. Their whole way of life was built around that idea. Their worship and religious activities were, were centered around the fact that God was in that one place. And only that one place. But where does Jesus think that God is? God's not hidden behind walls or curtains that are controlled by powerful And wealthy people, but rather God is found in the place where even the most lost and even the most broken, even the most sinful people can go. The wilderness. There are no requirements. There's no standards to be in the wilderness. There's no gate. There's no toll booth. There's no checkpoint where you had to show your ID. No gate, no gatekeeper, no status, wealth, gender, ethnicity, no qualifications at all to be in the wilderness. John invites all to come and repent, to change their mind, to let God be their God. And so God meets us there. There are those who will claim God's authority to act on God's behalf, but rather than helping people find salvation, forgiveness, healing, redemption, they build barriers that keep God far away from the people that need him most. They build barriers that protect their own positions or their own powers or their own significance, their own status. But Jesus reminds us that God is not found in VIP areas of religious centers. God isn't found in the VIP section of the church. 
And that might sound like a funny thing, but there was a story in the news here the last few weeks about a church in New York City that had a VIP section, which just, anyways. Um, God is not found in the VIP section of churches. Our God is found in the wilderness, a place that any old sinner can wander into and find God's grace. And the truth is, honestly, we don't even have to go looking for those wildernesses, do we? It's not like you wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to have to go find this wilderness. We find ourselves in wilderness more often than we care to admit. I mean, can you think of a wilderness in your life, past or present, something that you say, this just feels dry, this just feels like there's no life here, this just feels far away from the good things. Maybe I, there's no roads out here, I don't know where I'm going. It, I'm lost, I'm confused, it's, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing out here. Again, the wilderness is, is, is special, not in and of itself. The wilderness is special because God chooses to meet us there, and God chooses to be present there with us. And so again, a God that comes to where you are is a God that can save you. The crowd that John was baptizing couldn't get to the God who was locked up in the temple. They couldn't. They couldn't. They, 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 some of those people that were baptized by John would never have been allowed to be baptized, would never have been allowed to enter those gates in that temple. But they were met by God in the wilderness in the baptism of forgiveness and repentance. They received in the wilderness what they never could have received in the temple. God meets them where they are. And if there's any doubt about that, if there's any question about can God really be out in the wilderness, Jesus, God's own son, was out there with them. Where is God? The story of Jesus teaches us that God is with us. Not because we made it to the top of the holy mountain, not because we've achieved some level of knowledge or uh, performed certain tasks in order to get to the top of that holy mountain and enter the right gates through the right doors and pass the right people, but because God has come and met us in the wilderness. A God that comes to where you are is a God that can save you. We know God. We can know God. Not because we've cleaned ourselves up and deserve it. Not because we qualify to go into the Holy of Holies. But because the God who loves us comes to us. And where God is present, there is life. So the invitation for all of us today is to trust that God meets us wherever we are. Even in the wildernesses of our own lives. Trust that God can meet us wherever we are even in those barren, dry, lifeless places that we encounter from time to time. I'm going to invite the praise team to come and lead us in one more song as a time of response. You're welcome to, to pray, to sing, to stand and think, whatever may be appropriate for how God is engaging you today. But as you do that, let the Spirit speak to your hearts and to your minds. May the, the Spirit bring to life inside of you something that invites you and draws you to see God in your midst. And trust that God meets us wherever we are. <laughs>